Genesis chapter 3 is our text this morning. I hope you have your Bibles. I really do. I mean, we preach every week out of the Word of God alone. We really encourage you to bring your Bibles. Every once in a while, you're going to forget, but try to bring them. If you didn't bring yours, there should be one right in front of you in the back of that pew. You know, in the early days of push-button radios, the children and families would often amuse themselves by listening to one program and then pushing the button that would quickly switch them to another. Now, this is a true story, what I'm about to tell you. There was a family that was listening to the marriage ceremony of Queen Elizabeth of England to Philip. And here's what the minister said. Do you, Philip, take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? And at that precise moment, one of the kids hit that button and believe it or not, switched over to a prize fight that was just commencing with the words of the referee, shake hands, go to your corners and come out fighting at the bell. Now friends, listen. That is an apt illustration for the battle of the sexes. Now, if you're married, come on, you got to admit, sometimes we fight terribly. Don't we? <clears throat> it's some of us more than others. Even if you're not married, I think it's almost impossible to sustain a problem-free friendship. The closer you get, the more things seem to creep in. And two weeks ago, the last time we were in this series, we saw that God gave a sentence to Eve and that it struck at the very deepest levels of her womanhood, her relationship with her children and her relationship with her husband. This morning, we're going to see that the sentence that God gave to Adam and to every man that's ever going to live, including every man today, is going to strike just as deeply in our hearts. What is this sentence? Well, if you open up your Bibles, if you have them open, chapter 3, verse 17, let's go ahead and start taking a look at it. And to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. We see here, whether you realize it or not, the first time that Adam's personal name is ever mentioned in the Bible. Well, you might be saying, well, Pastor Tim, I'm pretty sure I've been seeing the name Adam in chapter 2. Well, you've been seeing the name Adam with a definite article in front of it. It looks like this. The Adam, whether your English translates it like that or not. In the Hebrew, it's the man, the Adam. Now it's dropped and God is speaking personally from his heart to the heart of the man. And he says Adam, which means red soil or red ground. In fact, biblical names, friend, you, you probably know this, biblical names often reveal the person's character, the person's identity. And Adam's identity, now that we see this, is connected to the ground. His identity, who he is, who he sees himself to be, is connected inextricably to the dirt, to the fields. Now, you might be saying, well, how do you know that? Well, look at what the Hebrew word for ground looks like. 
And you'll see the relationship. Adam and ground are linked. Just as we saw weeks ago that the name man and woman, Ish and Isha, are linked inextricably. Then God does something here to Adam. Now men, you've got to hear this. That he just did not do with Eve. He gives Adam the reasons why he's giving him these, this sentence. And he says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. He gives two reasons. One that we see, obviously, it's because Adam broke the commands of God. He wasn't supposed to eat from the tree of the, good, the knowledge of good and evil, but he did. He broke the command, and this is one of the reasons why God is giving Adam the sentence that we're about to see. But amazingly, a lot of us miss the other reason. The other one is because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Now, why is that so bad? You know, Carissa, my daughter, whenever I'm telling you this happens without fail. Whenever I holler out, Carissa, in the home, she always answers, coming. Now, when I do that to the boys, they, they usually say, what do you want? Matthew says, punk. Why he gets spanked every other day. <laughs> I love you, son. Listened to means this. You ready? It's a phrase that means to hear with the intention to obey. It's like a soldier who listens to his officer. Adam listened to Eve's voice with the intention that he was going to obey her, not discerning, not leading her. He was going to follow her with what she, what she asked him to do. Her voice, her opinions, her desires. Friends, listen, this is what it means. Had more weight, carried more authority than even God's did. Adam gave to Eve the place of headship that God had given to him to occupy. So men, can I ask you, give, all, give me all of your attention. Look up here, every man. Are you the leaders at home? I think. Are you the leaders at home? Now notice I didn't ask if you were the dictators. Or the harsh and dominating ruler at home. I didn't ask if you make every decision in your home by your own personal counsel alone and expect your wife and your children to snap to it. I didn't ask that. What I'm asking is, are you living out the role that God has given to you of courageous, gracious leadership? It's our role to live God-given and it models the very Godhead, here's what Paul says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. Men, listen, we don't have boundless authority. Christ is our head. We answer to him. The head of every wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Father. Men, listen, this is so important. It is vital to our children for generations. Get that. I'm going to show you biblically 
for generations that they see their fathers being the courageous, gracious leaders in their homes. And some of you, quite honestly, I know this because I've heard so many of your stories and I appreciate when you let me into your life, but I've seen over and over how many of us never saw our fathers as leaders in our homes. Friends, the stories of the passive, weak, and nearly invisible father and the correspondingly domineering, controlling mother are so normal in our society. And you take these men and their leaders at their workplaces, but then they get home and they're these passive, silent followers content to let their wives lead. Haven't you ever noticed, like I have, all the men who are in levels of management who can lead their companies, but they flounder and they waffle at home? Do you remember Eli? the judge and the high priest of Israel. I mean, come on, he's leading the entire nation of Israel. But the Bible says of his home life that his two sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. And then you take Samuel, who literally grew up under Eli's parenting, who saw and formed their con- his concept of biblical masculinity through this man, Eli. And the Bible says of Samuel that he had two sons who were judges over Israel, and his sons did not walk in his ways, but they turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice, and Samuel did nothing. And then you've got Samuel who finds under God's leadership the king of Israel, David. And he appoints him to this kingdom. And David, the king of Israel, had a wicked son, Adoniah, who tried to take over the throne of Israel while David was still alive. You don't do that. Now listen, men. We got to hear this. The Bible lays the blame for Adoniah's actions at the feet of David. It says, David had never at any time displeased Adoniah by asking, why have you done thus and so? David never made his son see his heart. It brought about consequences for his actions. Generationally, if we forfeit leadership, men, our children, and their grandchildren will suffer. And over and over in the Bible, we see men who were courageous in their careers, but absent leaders at home, men who were called to lead their families, yet gave it up and let their wives take over. Because Adam followed his wife and listened to her with the intention of obeying her rather than leading her through the temptation, God gave him a sentence that profoundly affected his and every man's identity since. And friends, it's in the ground that God cursed. Let's take a look at it. Reflect with me for a minute. Come on, guys and ladies, get into the shoes of the Scripture characters. Does it do us any good to look at this from afar? Climb into Adam's life with me. 
The whole earth had been given to Adam and Eve for their pleasure, for their purpose, for their satisfaction. Friends, can you even imagine this? They had dominion over all of the earth. Eve was his helper, and it was meant to give them a supremely satisfying, good life as they worked it and kept it. Yes, they had to work the garden, but it yielded its food willingly. Man, have you ever spent the day out in your yard? And when you started it, there's branches everywhere, the grass is overgrown, the shrubs need cutting. And by the end of the day, before it gets dark, you take one last look at your now taking care of yard and your heart fills with satisfaction. You know what I mean. That's the way Adam lived every day. Imagine then, Now that we've stepped into his shoes, what goes through Adam's heart when he hears these words from God, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Take note, especially teens. It's not work that is cursed. You can never use that as an argument with your parents. I shouldn't do my chores. Because it's cursed and work. It's not work that is cursed. It's the object of your work that is cursed. See, Adam sinned by eating the fruit of the earth. And now God sentenced him and cursed the ground so that the earth will not willingly yield its fruit easily. But we're called and we're commanded by God to work. And friends, work is a good thing. It was part of God's perfect plan. Work was given to humanity before sin even entered the world. In fact, friends, listen, and men, this is a message for you. Ladies, you're still swept up in this, but it's men that we're targeting because God is speaking to Adam. So men, let me tell you, work is one way that you follow Christ. This is what Luke says. My food, Jesus says, is to do the will of him who sent me to accomplish his work. Nobody worked harder than Jesus. But to not work, now listen, to not work when work is available and when you're able is to corrupt the very image of God in us. Paul commanded the church at at Thessalonica, he says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Wow. This is the loving apostle Paul. And he goes on, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly, to earn their own living. The church, friends, I don't know if you know this, but the church and the Jews in the first century had an extremely advanced benevolence ministry. But Paul says there's boundaries, church. There's boundaries in benevolence that I will not let you step beyond. And one of those boundaries is that men must live responsibly before the Lord in the area of work. Now, I grew up in central New York. 600 people in my town, no 
traffic lights whatsoever. You bring in all the farmers in the district around town, you've got about 2,000 people. And it seemed to me that it was the capital of unemployment and disability. And we had so many people in our town who are getting disability checks, unemployment, and yet they're out riding four-wheelers and snowmobiles and splitting wood while they're reaping the benefits from the state. Friends, listen to me. It is unethical biblically to stay on disability or welfare or unemployment if you're able to work and work is available. It is wrong. But I'll lose my benefits, I hear. Or I make more on disability than I would in a job with minimum wage. Friends, trust God. Live honorably before him. He will provide. Work. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, he says to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and listen and to work with your hands why so that you might live properly before outsiders friends listen if you got work available and you're able to work and you will not do it you tarnish your message in christ but not only that it be dependent on no one paul says live dependent on nobody don't be a burden to anyone show yourselves examples to the world. In fact, friends, listen to me. Listen, if I'm wrong in this, you please correct me because I don't want to break the Word of God open wrongly. But I have looked in the Old Testament. I am still looking. I've looked in the New Testament. I can't find one single verse, one admonition or command that the church is to provide benevolence for people who will not and are able to work. I can't find it. There's a boundary that we've got to observe because we're to work in a way that brings glory to God and honor to his church. Men, it's not work that is cursed. It's the object of our work. But what does it mean for something to be cursed? You know, we're kind of in the age of magic and you got movies filled with witchcraft, magic, Wiccan, philosophy, vampires. I mean, it's all the rage right now. What's it mean for something to be cursed? Does it, is it, does it mean you throw a magical hex on somebody or something? You know what biblically it means to be cursed? It means the exact opposite of what it means to be blessed. And what it means to be blessed is to put somebody or something under the protection of God so that they can enjoy his favor. So when God cursed the ground, what he did was he removed his favor from the ground. He removed his protection and he removed his blessings on it. That's what it means when God cursed the ground. And how stark this is when you put it in light of chapter 1, verse 29, where God says, Behold, Adam, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit and you shall have them for food. And now here today, he says, Adam, in pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Man, listen, it's the ground that is cursed for all of us. And there is no ultimate escape this side of heaven. 
Ladies, you see that word pain? In pain you shall eat of it. You remember two weeks ago? That ladies will experience pain and childbearing. And we learned that that word pain rarely ever in the Hebrew language refers to physical pain. Almost always referring to sorrow that comes about with hard toil. That's what's in mind. In sorrow, Adam, you shall eat from all the toil, all the hard toil, all the days of your life. You see, the sentence to the woman affected her role in the home with her children and with her husband. The sentence to the man will affect his role out in the field as a provider and for his family. And just as a wife will experience sorrow in those areas for her, the husband will experience sorrow in what he puts his hands to. All of what he does, all of what he tries to bring into order is going to be ruled by disorder. All of it, his marriage, his family, his career, his friendships, all of them will experience thorns and thistles. Men, we're going to experience thorns. Now, think with me. You know what thorns are. You ever been blackberry picking? Where I grew up in New York, up on the hill, were just groves of blackberries. But it was amazing because all the best blackberries were in the deepest thicket of briars. And that's the way that life works. Thorns are sharp, painful, uncomfortable obstacles that seem to be ever-present. They get in the way of accomplishing what we want, what we need to. And more than that, they prevent us from getting to the fruit that's going to satisfy our lives. Thorns are obstacles to satisfaction, obstacles to success. In our jobs, friends, men, you know this, there's always problems. Nothing is easy. In fact, this week, I went out to, the, to my truck to go home for lunch, and there I could see it right from the road is a big screw in my tire. I pulled it out, air started coming back in, so I screwed it back in and went as fast as I could to Walmart where I bought them, hoping that they were under warranty, and they were. I get there, and the guy at Walmart is logging me into his handheld computer, and 10, 10 to 15 minutes his process took. And he got to the last button to hit, and he hits the wrong button. And we had to start all that over again, and he turned to me, and friends, listen, he gave me a four-word sentence that is the exposition of Genesis 3. He says, life is never easy. That's our sentence you can start a new job and you think with excitement, this is my dream job, and months down the road, it is fraught with thorns. Always feeling the pressure to perform, wondering if you're going to have a job next month. You might get a verbal agreement on a contract today and tomorrow because of greed and politics, it falls through. You do the work that you promised to do and you can't get paid. Always going to be thorns. And God says, not only thorns, Adam, not only thorns, men of every generation, there's going to be thistles in your life. You know, I learned what thistles are this week. I didn't know this. Thistles are luxurious, often flowering plants that are covered all over with prickles. They look life-sustaining, but they can't be eaten. They look good, but they're useless. They're pretty, but they have no meaning. 
Thistles grow in every single career. They're found in every workplace. In fact, friends, I really think that the book of Ecclesiastes could easily be called the thistles of life. Listen to this from chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. That sounds great. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity. That's a thistle. Vanity is the fog that's there in the morning that dissipates before even 10 o'clock. You start your job and you think this is going to be a great day and all of a sudden out of everywhere come problems and obstacles. That's why in the next chapter Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes 3, what gain has the worker from his toil? That's the curse. Solomon knew that the object of our toil is cursed. It can't bring any lasting pleasure and satisfaction. Amen. Listen, it's only when Christ redeems our work that it can be fulfilling and lasting. I talked to a man who's a pilot in our church, and he says there's hours and hours, Pastor Tim, of autopilot time. Man, it's filled with drudgery, but I get the opportunity to talk to my co-pilots about Christ. I talked to a lady last night who works in a maid service. She says, I clean everything from mansions to pothouses. And the work is the most inglorious work you can imagine. But Tim, you've got to hear all the conversations I've been having with the people I work with about Christ. That's how work became, be, gains meaning and satisfaction when we find Christ in it. But men, God says one more thing. Not only will there be thorns and thistles, but we will eat the plants of the field. You see, Adam's food was no longer the delicacies of Eden. They were, it was now the plants of the field. You know, that makes a lot of sense when you turn to Matthew 13, where Jesus gives the parable of the sower. You remember that, right? And after he was done with that parable, his disciples said, Jesus, can you explain that parable to us? Because we don't understand it. And one of the first things Jesus says is that the field is the world. Do you know what it means, men, that we're going to eat the plants of the field? It means we're going to eat the plants of the world. It means that we're going to eat the food of the world, and we're going to find that it cannot nourish our souls. And when we will faithfully obey Christ's words in John 6 where he says, do not labor for food that perishes. Do not move after food of the world, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give to you. That's when we'll find work becoming redemptive again. That's Men, listen, that's when we'll find work releasing from the curse. Because the world's food perishes and it leaves our souls famished. But Christ has food that's not from this world. It can fill your souls with deep, deep satisfaction. But friends, listen, his food, Christ's food is not found in large bank accounts. 
It's not found in your vacation homes. It's not found in having cars that you don't really need. It's not even found in higher, ever higher positions in your company. There's no soul-sustaining power in them. None. But that food is available to the poorest person who in Christ is full of satisfaction and joy. You know where I learned this? In Haiti where there's 98% unemployment, not because they're lazy, but there's no work to do. Do you know what the average annual salary was in Haiti when I went? Men, listen, $250. And we would go from the middle of Cap Haitian, one of the, the second largest town in Haiti, where there's a, a trash heap at least 60 to 80 feet high, with dozens and dozens of children scouring it, looking for a scrap of food or something to sell in the market, we would go from there to church, and we would see Haitian men and women and children who were in Christ, who had smiles and joy leaking out of them. And it finally really dawned on me experientially that this world's food can't fill my soul. But somehow, when there is no food of this world, Christ's food can. Ladies, can I speak to you for a minute? There may not be a more identity-crushing situation for a man than to be unable to provide for his family. Adam's identity was found in who he was and what he was created to do. It was bound together with the ground. Adam with Adamah, the person with the occupation. Friends, ladies, listen. A man's identity is inextricably linked with his work. Don't demean his work. I came to realize this fully. Years ago, 1995, it was a hot June morning. I'm sitting at a trucking fuel station below Metro Atlanta. It was a little after 6 a.m., and I began to reflect on my life. You see, Denise and I were married. We had Matthew. He was about eight months old. And though I was a youth pastor, the church could not afford to pay us what we needed to pay our bills. In fact, every week people gave and their tithe check and whatever they designated to the youth pastor fund, that was my paycheck week to week. Yet God provided, but I had to get another job and the best job, best paying job I could find that would allow me to still do ministry, even with my graduate degree, was driving a truck cleaning porta potties. And that morning, I had been driving this F-450 dually truck down right through the center of Atlanta, Interstate 75, and I got below the city, and I pulled off and into this station for the first porta potty to clean, when all of a sudden, the entire truck lurched to the right, and over to my right, I look out the window, and both dual rear wheels go rolling past me. I sat back in that truck, having called the tow truck, waiting for it to arrive, arrive, and I reflected on what could have been the next day's headlines, pastor parishes and poop pileups. <laughs> I knew that was going to be me. 
And as demeaning as it is to pull into a work site and have everybody pointing at you and laughing because you're going to clean their poop was nothing compared to what happened next in my life. So we had to move back to New York. I worked with my brother and we lived with my parents. My father was a hard man. He loved us, but he could never tell you. And every day he would say, Tim, have you tried doing this? And I kept hearing him say, Tim, you're a failure. You can't provide for your family. For a year, I would go to church every Sunday. Tears would flow down my face. Felt God had thrown me away. I never had tasted depression until that point in my life. Friends, that was the hardest year I have ever lived. Because men, our identities are linked in with our careers. And when I could not provide for my family, I felt like a failure. But God humbled me. I was a prideful man. I didn't even see it. He humbled me throughout that year, and he brought me back to hope, and he convinced me, Tim, I'm in control. But you've got to find Christ in your work instead of making it an idol. And when I did that, he restored me back to working in ministry. Still hard ground will always, always be an obstacle. But man, I'm telling you that if you are working in your career for what it could bring you, your soul is emaciated whether you know it or not. But when you find your career is an extension of the kingdom of God and it's through that that you've got your ministry and you bring the seeds of the gospel to bear, that's when the ground will willingly yield its fruit. It's when your life will again be satisfying. This is a curse on the ground, not on work. And men, we are called to work. Listen, if you're on disability and you've got the ability to work, work. Get off of it. If you're at reaping unemployment, but there's work available, drop your unemployment and work and bring glory to God and honor to his church. Trust him, he will provide and find Christ in your career. Amen. Let's pray, Lord. Thank you for your word. Lord, this is a hard sermon. This is a hard year for me that I spoke about. But Lord, it was a good year. You did a lot in my heart. Lord, I know we've got brothers in this church that are struggling in their careers, struggling to find work. Lord, prove yourself faithful, I pray. Let us honor you and bring dignity to your plan, Lord, for men to be hard workers. And Lord, I realize, Father, in that year of struggling, I don't even remember my wife or my Hardly remember them. It was such a hard year. Lord, you brought me through it. And I learned, Father, that we need to find
glorifying Christ in our career so that we can lead our families graciously and courageously. Help us with that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.